Open your Bibles, if you would, Matthew 22. Continuing in our study of the Gospel according to Matthew, we're still in the the first days of the Passion Week, and Jesus is continuing His dialogue with the chief priests and their their entourage. If if I seem a little bit disconnected this morning, please bear with me. Uh, I spent the entire week uh, in some training with the Department of Public Safety relative to my work as a chaplain with the state troopers. And I do want to say just one thing about that, other than it was amazing training. Um, I consider my work as a chaplain with the troopers part of the outreach of this church. And the reason I say that is this church pays a price for that to happen. And that is, like this week, I'm not here, I'm there. And whenever I'm called out to a chaplaincy task of any kind, it takes away from this. And so I want you to know that whether or not you agreed to it or not, that's another story, um, but I consider it an outreach of our fellowship, and I appreciate the cooperation. The kitchen crew was great. They handled everything all week, and as far as I know, there was no fires or anything, nothing. Don't tell me. I don't want to know. Okay, Matthew chapter 22. And we, um, we pick up the account as, as Jesus continues, again, to dialogue with the chief priests. Verse 1, Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves. And you could use the word servant here just as easily. The word could be translated either way. Uh, He sent out his his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. They were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fattened livestock are all butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention, went their way. One to his own farm, another to his business. The rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. But the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding feast. And those went out in the streets and gathered together all they found, both good and evil. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. Father, thank you for your word, Lord. Father, this, this visual is, is really different than our world in so many ways, and so it's kind of a challenge. But we ask that you'd help us, as we look to your word, to hear the truth you have for us as we um, endeavor to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow, what a, what a parable. I mean, if you have any sensitivity at all to what he's saying to, the very, to, this, to these uh, chief priests, uh, it's like a bucket of cold water. He just hit them in the face with. Um, to the uh, Jewish reader, there's no mystery anywhere in this parable. They, a Jewish reader, especially one of the first century, would have known exactly what he was saying. And it was an outright slap in the face. There is no other way to put it. And he does it in front of everybody. Remember, you know, the hairy, unwashed crowd is still right over there, right? The mob that the, that the high priest thinks so little of. They're just sitting right there listening to all this. Um, I know nobody here is old enough to remember 1938, but you may remember um, that in 1938, an author by the name of Dale Carnegie published a very famous book. I'm sure some of you know the name of that book. It's an influence people. That book was not applied in this situation. 
There is nothing in this situation of, of, of making friends or doing things, you know, nicely. This is just right in their face. That the story is straightforward enough. Um, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who throws a party, a feast for his son's wedding. Those he has invited to come, they don't come. They're not interested. Just no interest at all. The party wasn't a surprise. The grammar makes it clear. They had been invited. The invitations had gone out in a timely fashion. But they're just not interested. The, uh, the revised standard says they made light of the invitation. They go so far as to um, kill some of the servants that take the invitations, that send out the call, it's time to come. So the king sends his army. He kills those who don't come. And he burns down their city. Then he sends his servants out to invite whomever they may find, good and bad, because the feast is ready. So exactly what is what's going on here? Um, what is Jesus actually saying? And what, what, what's the meaning to the chief priests? How, how are they going to hear this? And finally, what does it say to us? So first of all, let's talk about what's being said. Again, it's, it's really clear, especially so to a, a first century Jewish audience. Now, one of the things about this particular parable, it is loaded with one term or expression or idea after another that's loaded with meaning to a first century audience. Almost every word he used, it's, um, it's like Chris Smith talks about the furniture of the brain. These words and ideas are the furniture of the brain of a first century Jew. And Jesus just hits one right after another. And all of these ideas and thoughts come to the surface, right? Um, his reference to a king, for example. Now, in the Jewish mind, they would have quickly understood he was talking about God. Because God and king are identified, you know, Throughout the Old Testament, you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 12, when they got their first king. God speaking through the prophet Samuel said, you made a mistake because God was your king. And you've asked for this guy as a substitute. Right? So the idea that God was king, is, 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 it's in their minds, right? The idea of a marriage feast, that would have also immediately touched some, some nerves in, in, in their thinking. That God was married to Israel was not just an idea they understood, but it was central to their thinking of their relationship as the people of God with God. There's an entire book in the Old Testament dedicated solely to the idea that God is married to Israel. And if you're thinking Song of Solomon, you're wrong. That's about something else. No, the book of Hosea, one of the most difficult books of the Old Testament to read. Not hard to understand, but hard to read because the meaning of Hosea is so clear. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take for yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry because the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So the way God made it so very clear that he saw himself as married to Israel is by telling the prophet to go out and make his own life a living example of Israel's unfaithfulness to him. I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling what he asked the man to do. Extraordinary. The imagery of Hosea is overwhelming at times. The matter of the sun could not 
have been quite as easy because Israel saw itself as God's son, but Jesus had also made it clear there was a different dynamic here. The idea in the parable that the nation of Israel was both bride and son, that actually wouldn't have been too difficult. The Semitic mind can hold two different thoughts. That's, that's that way they think. Um, the idea of servants, that God would not act alone, but had his servants to do his bidding. The whole prophetic ministry, as displayed throughout the Old Testament, followed in those, in those veins. And the idea of guests, we, I don't think, can begin in our Western mind to understand the significance of that word and how much weight that would carry, even in a modern Middle Eastern mind, let alone a first, a first century mind. You know, of course, no celebration's complete, especially a wedding without guests, that kind of goes. Um, but in Middle Eastern culture, it goes way, way, way beyond that. Um, not just to have guests, but to treat them properly. And a failure in the way you treat a guest or in the way the guest responds to a host is, is huge. It's, it's simply out of the question. The whole, the whole imagery of Jesus at the, at the wedding in Cana, where if the wine runs out, we have an unacceptable situation. Jesus' reluctance to act in that situation, yet motivated by his mother's understanding of the seriousness of the moment, caused Jesus to act. That's just... Our, our, our culture is nowhere near that, and, and I, I use this as an example. I know I've talked about it before. It, it's a soapbox for me, but if you go to Timothy or Titus, I'm just happen to be looking at First Timothy this morning, First Timothy three. Um, Paul lists what we call the qualifications of a bishop, and there's various places in Timothy and Titus, and Paul writes those letters that he limits. He lists whether you want to call them qualifications or characteristics or requirements, however you want to define it, of what what a uh, in this case a bishop is supposed to be but it could be an elder in the church. And we very reasonably apply this list that Paul makes, these lists, um, in people you know, moving into ministry. And they're the kind of reasonable things you want, you know, like faithfulness in your marriage, able to teach, those kind of things. But there's one in that list, on, on both of the lists, by the way, one in that list that says given to hospitality. Now, I've been through I don't know how many interviews in the process of first being licensed as a minister and then ordained as a minister and then appointed as a missionary. And, of course, Joyce has been through those same interviews. I've talked to other ministers that have been through that process, other missionaries been through that process, and I always ask the question, of, of all the things you're asked about, and you're asked about everything, I'm not making it up when I see when Joyce and I went overseas, the, the, the file they had on us was that thick. They had everything. They actually had files on our references. The references that we had had to submit references. They were that thorough, right? But in all of that, not one question about our perspective on hospitality or how we exercise hospitality or even what the word means. I have never talked to anyone in any, any fellowship, any denomination, anywhere, when going through the credentialing, ordination, whatever you want to call it, when going through that process, ever asked one question about the meaning, the nature, or the exercise of hospitality. And yet it's in the same list with everything else. It just gives you an idea how much more important that issue was in the first century Jewish culture, Middle Eastern culture, than it is to us today. Just miles apart. There's daylight between the two. 
So this imagery of the guests would have been so... The reason I say all that is just to get this idea of how important the issue of how you treat a guest and how a guest is supposed to respond. Huge, huge Middle Eastern thinking. Um, the whole question of oxen and fatted calves. Something as simple as that. Those were loaded terms for them. Um, of course, in any celebration, you have to have food. That just is given, right? Um, and the word for oxen, if it helps with the visual, it could just as easily be translated as steer, right? So the text says the steers, plural. It's a lot of meat. And so I did a little research, and I double-checked with our resident authority, John Brown, the butcher. Um, one steer, you don't know how many, but they had more than one. One steer, depending on how generous you are, feeds between 800 and about 1,200 people. And he had ox, plural, plus the fattened calves, right? This was going to be a big party. He's got a lot of meat. He needs to get cooked in a hurry, right? Yeah, and they're already butchered, right? So he needs to have, the party needs to happen now. But the issue of the fattened calves, the fattened calf is especially significant. Um, the word for fattened, it does not come from Greek. I'm sorry. Um, it comes, it's a Proto-Indo word, which means it's even earlier than Greek, but it's the same root as our word for satiate. You know, I know we never use that word, but it means when you've really eaten too much, pretty much is what it means. So this is a calf, and if we have any animal rights here, people, I apologize, but this is a calf that's been fed too much since the day it was born, just to make it, you know, and the reason for it is special occasions only. You don't celebrate a fattened calf just because you know somebody shows up and you want to grab, you know grill for dinner. Something important is happening, right? Um, for example, in 2 Kings 6.13, when they're moving the ark up to Jerusalem, fattened calf, they sacrifice them. Like every six steps that David took, boom, fattened calf, a lot of meat. They throw big parties. Um, but this whole imagery, the sacrificial imagery of the animals being slaughtered, all of this would have really been understood, would have just hit these points in, 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 in the mind of, of Jesus' listeners. Um, and then, of course, the death and destruction God's judgment on his enemies, that does seem a little extreme. I invite you to my son's wedding, and you don't come, so I kill you and burn your house. Let's be honest, that's just not how we think, right? Well, actually, it's not, it's not quite that simple. Um, first of all, the, given the whole idea of hospitality and how a guest is supposed to respond, um, the fact that the invitations had already gone out well in advance they had known about the wedding feast and the lame excuses they make. I got to go take care of my farm, like it won't be there tomorrow, right? Or take care of my business. Again, the Revised Standard says they simply made light of what Jesus. And then, of course, they did mistreat and kill some of the servants who were sent out. You see, declining an invitation, especially one like this, and the way they did, is not just an offense even an offense of the highest order, it's a rejection, not just of the invitation, but of the person that sent it. It's a rejection of the invitation and the person that sent it. All of this, again, is going on in the minds of Jesus' listeners, both the high priests and, again, the mob who's listening. So how about the high priests? How, how are they going to hear this? Well, pretty straightforward. God had his extended an invitation. They rejected it, and in so doing, rejected him. And God is going to respond appropriately, right? Uh, Jesus' words indicate that from God's perspective, 
they had failed utterly in fulfilling their side of the relationship. Everything about the law, the whole Old Testament contract is God's going to do this, you're going to do this, and vice versa. Right? Both have roles to play. You guys have failed completely in your role. Okay? And with their complete rejection, they were rejected by God. God would invite somebody else. Try to hear that from the mind of a Jewish high priest. God's going to invite somebody else. It's as if Jesus were saying, and I'm not trying to put words into the text, just to kind of put it in our, our, our contemporary thinking. True, you guys have the land, the temple, the robes, the offering, all of that stuff. But you've completely missed what it's all about. Because all of that stuff, from the land they were living on, the children they had born, the temple they went to, everything they did in the temple, the priests, the robes, all of that points to one thing, one person, and he just walked through the front door. And you can't see it because you're not interested. This is what it means to the high priests. Everything about what they did pointed at Jesus, and yet they can't accept it. Romans 10, 4 says Christ is the end of the law, and that means the point of the law, not the terminus of the law, but the whole purpose and point of the law is the person of Christ. Galatians 3.24, speaking of the law, Paul says Christ, the law is a tutor to lead us to Christ. It all points to him. Everything they were doing, their entire world pointed to Jesus, and they miss it. In fact, they reject it. So when you have all of this... You come to the conclusion that when the moment arrived, you, the high priests, he says, willfully, deliberately, and violently rejected everything this was all about. So the conclusion is pretty much a done deal. It's not a pretty picture. More importantly, what does it say to us? Well, first, a word of warning. Um, when we get into these parables, and especially this parable because it has so many details in it, sometimes we have an inclination to, to go to each one of these points and like a little mini parable out of it and attach a bunch of meaning to the details. For example, just the, the way that they rejected the messengers. You know, Some made light of it. Some went to their farms. Some went to their businesses. Some killed. That's like, that's like four categories of rejection. No, no, no. You don't want to build a whole you know, mental concept out of each point. In the parable, it's, it's to get the point the parable is making. All of the parable works together. You always want to be mindful of that. So what's the, what are the, what's the point here? Well, it moves through a couple of steps. First of all, a really important point, God loves a party. God is all, not like a vulgar, you know, sinful excess that we associate with that word, but God loves celebration. He has designed us with that inclination. Now, you might not like loud parties. Some people don't like loud, but you like, it's our nature. We want to, we are communal people. We were made that way. And we all know the difference between it's the middle of the workday, you're getting hungry, you can't stop, you're not going to go sit in a break room with people, so you shove some food in your face to get to the end of the day, right? That's eating. That's survival. But that's not what we're designed for. That's not what we're made for. Interestingly, and I'm, I'm going to try not to go too many times to this last week of training that I had. Absolutely phenomenal. 
absolutely phenomenal. I had the opportunity at several points through the week to um, interface with a, with a US, Deputy U.S. Marshal. Great conversations, obviously a believer. Talked about several different things, but on Friday as I was leaving, I wanted to see him, shook his hand, walked out the door, and I just made the comment in passing. I said, I said, you know, I said, there's some stuff there I can really preach. And he said to me, Pastor, if you can't preach this stuff, you got no preach in you. So we had connected, we had connected, right? But one of the things I learned, for example, is when they do the stuff we're learning how to do, you do it both individually and in a group. You have to do both. Because there's some things we just do as human beings so much better in a group. And one of the weaknesses of our society, and I'll be honest, terrorizes me, is our loss of, of, of the importance of connection. And I say, I mean all of Western culture. We have, we're really losing this. Um, there was a 2013 article, so pre-COVID, this is all pre-COVID, uh, it was an Australian journal entitled The Daily Life. There was an article, I'm not making this up, celebrating the demise of the family dinner. The author referred to it, the family dinner, as an archaic ritual. No bitterness in that voice, right? Yeah. The last line of the article read this way. So if you worry about the decline of the family dinner, don't. Just make sure you have a couch that's easy to clean and let family dinner go the way of the dinosaurs. That's not a healthy direction for society to be going. We are designed, created to function in community. Putting it another way, God is all about community and connection. God's being is described in Scripture in terms of connection and community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our... Everything about it. It's not just a New Testament concept. It's there the whole book, right? We are creatures of community, both in our reaction to positive things and in our reaction to negative experience. That's the first thing. God loves it when his people get together, and he wants to be part of it. That's his makeup, his nature. Secondly, the truth is in front of us. The, the, the tragedy of this parable is that what they've been waiting for is just kind of just walk through the door. What they've been waiting, what, 1,400, 1,500 years? They just walk through the front door and they miss it. How do you do that, right? The king had come to them. They couldn't be bothered. You know, God forbid that an invitation be in front of us. And that invitation is more than just the invitation to salvation. I think we all understand that. There's an invitation to salvation. There's also an invitation to come into fellowship that he extends to his people, his community, his communion, his body, his church. There's an invitation to come to the table. Yes, that is communion, but that's every time his people gather. Come to the table. To hear that invitation and be so preoccupied with the stuff of life so as to miss the invitation is pure folly. That's a word we don't use a lot in our contemporary vernacular. We should reintroduce it. It is foolishness to neglect. As Hebrews says, what shall save us if we neglect so great a salvation? He's talking to people who are saved. Yet we can neglect it by neglecting the community and the community. Third, I think perhaps most importantly, God invites those least worthy to come into community. They come to the party. 
The king sent his servants to the highways, the streets, the roads, and he called, he called those most unworthy. I looked up the words. The people he described, they were the good and the bad, and the word for bad is really bad. They were the most unworthy. How did they get through the door? They got invited, and they came. What qualifies us to come to the feast is his invitation. That's it. And he extends it to all. I guess I, I would conclude this way. We've all seen the painting. I, did, I didn't even think we need to put it up. That painting of the table that like goes off into eternity. We've all seen that painting, The Last Supper. It's just it's, it's place settings. It goes forever. One of those infinity type of paintings. I think we've all seen that. Um, it's good. I like that painting because it just shows the, the, the size of the party, how many people are going to be there. But there's, and it's in the future, right? That, that feast is in the future. Revelation talks about it. But here's the thing it's actually already started. You know, the 15 minutes, or sometimes 20, depending on the number of coffees that have been ordered, um, that we do before service between 11 and 11.15, 11.20, that, that period of time when people are just hanging around together and talking and enjoying the fellowship of God's people, that part has already started for that feast. There already are saints milling around the table waiting to be told to sit down. We're already there. And then one last, one last thought as I think about that image, that great table with all those seats. And it's, it's both a joyous thought and it's a sobering thought. It's a thought I will admit I haven't completely thought through. I know it sets off certain theological alarm bells. So I offer it just for you to think. Just think about this week and you can come back next week and say, John, you were so off base on that, I can't believe it. Or you can say, that was really thought-provoking. Whatever. Just think about this. In that, in the, at that point, I want to say at that point in space and time, but at that point in space and time won't work anymore. So whenever we all sit down at that table, consider this. The seat that you take might have originally been for somebody else. And they missed it. They blew it. And that seat was made available for you or I. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. You're, we, can, we can read these parables and okay, we kind of, you know, we're reading through them and we really, yeah, I got that. That's great. But if we just camp on these things a little bit, we see the sobering reality of what you were saying to these people who thought in their minds, they thought they were like at the center of what you were all about and they could not have been more wrong. Father, forgive us for ever entertaining, even for a moment, we can't make that same mistake. That we can't think, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm good with God, and yet, in that critical hour, we, may, we, we miss the invitation. Father, we, we don't have a, a need to live in fear. All we have a need to do, Father, is join the celebration, that, that first part, even right now, of being part of your family, your community. Help us, I pray, to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together this morning and worship him.